Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Cup of Taboo, where we discuss things that are weird and creepy. I'm your host, Tyler. Today, we will be talking about Alistair Crowley, the Great Beast. Let's get started. Okay, so this was actually supposed to be my first ever episode. I had like, I did a bunch of research on this guy and I was like, yes, this is the episode I'm going to start my podcast with. But then, I don't know why, I kind of chickened out for some reason. I was like, ah, maybe it's not the right one and I was scared. So I instead decided to start with a cult. But anyway, the reason I actually wanted to start with this guy is because my mom has this like series of books called... What is it called? The Mysteries of Mind, Space, and Time. And I asked her, she's in Joburg and I'm in Cape Town. And I asked her to send me, like, just the just the um, the indexes of each of them so that I could get some ideas of what to talk about, you know? Because it's like really weird topics. And I remember loving these books as a kid. Like, I would page through them and just be fascinated with all the really weird pictures. And the first page that came through had the name Alistair Crowley on. So I was like, okay. And I really wanted to talk about him because I think he's very interesting. And now I feel a little bit more confident in front of the mark, so I'm going to talk about him. Yeah. He was often referred to as an icon of rebellion. I, as I said earlier, introduced to you Alistair Crowley. So Alistair's not a serial killer. I don't even know if he could be considered a killer. He's just, um, he's just an interesting dude. I don't think he is necessarily fully evil, but he's definitely not fully good either. He is just someone that I believe was born way before his time. I think a lot of what we have going on today was actually influenced by him in the way of like the way that he thought. And you know what? I think today he would have thrived in this climate. He would have been in his element. Actually, you know what? In the 60s, he would have been in his element, but... He was not around then. He was from the late 1800s, early 1900s. So anyway, one day I actually would really love to start a whole podcast just talking about interesting people like him from history. Because, you know, it's interesting to hear about the people that have done weird and interesting and amazing things. He didn't really do anything amazing, but people can be so fascinating. Like, we are the most fascinating things about this earth. But for now, I'll just stick to the taboo ones and... You know, the ones that make your conservative parents wrinkle their noses. Born as Edward Alexander Crowley in Warwickshire, Warwickshire, England, Warwickshire, Warwickshire, I have no idea how to say that, on the 12th of October 1875 to parents Edward and Emily Crowley, both devout Christians. Edward, the father, was a successful businessman, well, Maybe not necessarily a successful businessman, but he was part of a brewery family. So he had money. And the brewery fam- the brewery business was passed down to him. So, But he was actually like super into evangelism. And that's what he preferred to do. Edward Alexander, or, you know, he's actually, like we know him as Alistair. But I'm going to call him Crowley, just to avoid confusion for now. Because him and his dad have the same names. He was equally as Christian as his parents, out of, you know, respect for them when he was a child. He was 
apparently really close with his dad and he would follow his dad and be like, yes, I want to be like you, daddy. But this is pretty much the exact opposite of what he was later to become. So Crowley's father died of tongue cancer when Crowley was only 11 years old, which apparently sent him spiraling out of control because he did love his father very much and he was now stuck with his controlling mother. So his parents were part of the Plymouth Brethren sect, who were a group of Protestants who were incredibly strict. They lived by every word in the Bible, to the word. Everything was a sin, and Crowley was brought up in that. And his mother was really like, he was not, he was not, he didn't get along well with his mom, let me put it that way. She also did not get along well with him because now, you know, she's struck. So it was at this point in his life, um, just after his father died, when he started to pull away from Christianity and he started to rebel. In study groups, he would start pointing out inconsistencies in the Bible, he would smoke, and he started to get prostitutes and he slept with them. His mother started calling him the beast because of his rebellion. One of his greatest acts of defiance was sleeping with a maid on his mother's bed resulting in the maid getting fired and ultimately she ended up becoming a prostitute. It was said that he started to despise how strict the Christian faith was and he did not understand why everything that was so much fun was also so much looked down upon. That was not good English, I'm so sorry. Let's try that again. He did not understand why everything that was so much fun was also so looked down upon. <laughs> sorry. He went to Cambridge University after school and in 1895 he officially changed his name to Alistair which is spelled A-L-E-I-S-T-E-R. Not the normal way of spelling Alistair, but that's how he, that's what he decided on. And in his autobiography, he explained the reason he chose this name. Quote, For many years, I had loathed being called Alec, partly because of the unpleasant sound and sight of the word, partly because it was the name by which my mother called me. Edward did not seem to suit me, and the diminutives Ted or Ned were even less appropriate. Alexander was too long, and Sandy suggested tow-hair and freckles. I had read in some book or other that the most favourable name for becoming famous was one consisting of a dactyl followed by a spondee, as at the end of a hexameter, like Jeremy Taylor. Alistair Crowley fulfilled these conditions, and Alistair is the Gaelic form of Alexander. To adopt it would satisfy my romantic ideals. Unquote. So, that's, that's how he chose his name. I mean, some people are like, hey, I really dig the name... Jeremiah, and they they go with that, but he was like, nah fam, I'm gonna go full on English on this. So while in varsity, he would play chess often and well, and he was said to be intelligent. He studied, and he also had a few couple like relationships, the most notable one being a relationship with a man by the name of Herbert Jerome Pollitt. And there are actually some poems about Herbert and for Herbert that Crowley wrote that express his needs to be with him. Crowley was very into Herbert, who, I suppose, was kind of into Crowley, maybe not as much as what Crowley was into him. And Crowley said later that he was not gay, he was bisexual. And this was just another middle finger to the Christian faith in his eyes because he was rejected by them because of his bisexuality. When he left university and inherited his father's fortune, some people say he graduated, others says he did not, I believe he didn't. All is that I can say, when he left university at the age of 21, he was ready to go travel the world with the money that he did not earn. He was a rich child that now fell in, you know, typical, uh, what's it called, what's it called, uh, 
trust fund baby. 21, he was like, yes, I'm going to go travel. So he actually fell ill and, you know, man flu, thought he was going to die. And this opened his eyes to how mortal we are as humans. So he decided that he would dedicate his life to writing and the occult. He saw how he had to do what he wanted to do, and he would go against everything to do it. He would write dirty poems and stories that showed his obsession with sex that was growing. He had become increasingly interested in magic as well, and decided to enter a secret society to become a black magician. He met a chemist named Julian L. Baker, who introduced him to a secret society called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which he then joined. This order was devoted to studying paranormal activity in the matters of the occult. He took to this group like a pig to mud, rising in the magic ranks, but not in the society ranks. They didn't trust him. He even paid a private tutor to teach him different magic spells, which was frowned upon. But they would do all sorts of rituals and drugs, and he learnt. He also carried on with his sex-fueled ways, and, you know, the higher... Members of the order were not very happy about this. They refused to allow him to a senior rank because they believed he was into some very dark magic, which he was, and they thought that he would use it for evil and not for good. There were some prominent members in this club, William Yates and Bram Stoker being two of them, so you must know that this club was full of the upper echelon, 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 should we say? Yes, yeah, nah. In 1899, Crowley decided he wanted to do some hardcore magic spell called the Abramelin ceremony, which was supposedly a ceremony to bring about your guardian angel or something like that. So he bought himself a mansion house by Loch Ness, as one does. It was called Boleskin House, where he would perform this ritual. Basically, what he had to do was live in isolation and live off bread and water while meditating and doing all sorts of other ritual, ritualistic things for six months. He deserted the ritual because that's what he did and he apparently got kind of bored and nothing was happening. He wasn't getting any voices, he wasn't getting any angels, any demons, nothing. He was like, ugh, I'm over it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go travel again. Like, this, this is lame. But apparently this was quite a bad thing to do. Dangerous, they said. It is said that you needed to release a lot of demons, a lot of demons, to get the ritual right. And so by abandoning the ritual, he had all these free-ass demons running around. At this point, he kind of got bored of Scotland, so he also travelled to a couple places, and then he met Rose Edith Kelly, who happened to be in an arranged marriage engagement that she didn't want to be part of. So Crowley was like, hey, let's get married tomorrow, the day after meeting her. And she was like, yeah, that's cool, let's do it. So I, I think he did it to kind of help her get out of the arranged marriage, but I also think he did it out of spite to the, the man, you know? Stick it to the man. Not the man she was marrying, just the man in general. You know that man. But he actually did end up falling madly and deeply in love with her. He took Rose to Egypt on their honeymoon, and here he realized that Rose was a kinky little rabbit and enjoyed doing all sorts of things that were frowned upon. He mentioned in one of his memoirs that she was made a perfect wife as well as a perfect mistress. Which, isn't that what everyone wants? Sweet in the streets, dirty in the sheets, I don't know. They would take drugs and they would do debaucherous things. One source even mentioned spending some time alone in the chamber of the Grand Pyramid, if you know what I mean. One day, Rose, in a drug-induced trance-like state, started chanting to Crowley. They are waiting for you. Over and over again. 
Crowley was pissed off because he had been trying to communicate with the gods for years, and he didn't—he didn't even get a text back. You know what I'm saying? He didn't get—he didn't get a hint of nothing. And now he has this chick, like he's just bought her here, and then suddenly she's just chanting off as though these people are or these deities are speaking to her and not to him. I mean, how dare she? So at first he was like, "No, nah, she's faking it, right? She's." Definitely faking it. She doesn't even know magic. And she suddenly like is talking about these Egyptian gods. Like she knows them personally. Like they went to a bra last weekend. So he was like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Show me who, who was talking to you. And he took her to the Egyptian museum. And she immediately like walked through the place, got to a plaque with the god Horus on it and pointed at Horus and said, this, this is the one, and this exhibit number happened to also be 666, which was Crowley's favorite number, obviously, the mark of the beast. Crowley was like, whoa, okay, yeah, 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 she's she's the real deal. She's, she's, she must be telling the truth. So they went back to the, the, the hotel, and Rose told her that Horus had given her instructions on how to communicate with the spirits. So she gave Alistair a ritual to perform, and when he was done on the 4th of April, 1904, he heard a voice from his spiritual guardian named Iwas. Iwas told him that he needed to write down some information over three days as Iwas dictated to him. So he did exactly that and eventually had this published as the Book of the Law, which basically became the Bible of his later on religion. The most famous quote from this text and also what basically his mantra was, was, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, which, as it says, suggests that man and woman should do exactly what they want, regardless of moral and religious boundaries, and they will be happy. Personally, I think he was just tripping balls, hearing voices, and he just started writing it down, and he believed that he had this otherworldly man-woman deity speaking to him. So, anyway... Besides the point, a year later, Crowley took some people to go climb a peak called Kachinjunga, which happens to be one of the highest, most dangerous peaks to climb in the world. Something to mention here is that Crowley was actually a very skilled climber, and he had done many climbing expeditions before, and he, they said he could have actually been one of the best in the world if, you know, he didn't decide to chase other things. So this peak was another challenge for him to push himself like past his limits. And while climbing this mountain, one of the members of the group grew increasingly irritated with Crowley. With Crowley, I'm going to keep saying it Crowley. Sorry, supernatural did it to me. And this needs to. Oh, so one of the members grew increasingly irritated with Crowley and his need to control everything. And so most of the members of the team decided to actually turn back and go down the mountain one evening, and an avalanche hit. Crowley was unharmed, but a few of the men that had argued with him were caught in the avalanche, and he refused to go and help them, and instead he stayed in his tent and drank tea. Four men died in that accident. He then, after this extreme failure, he then decided to track across China with his wife and their daughter. Yes, they had a daughter now. He abandoned Rose when he reached Vietnam for a mistress. Unfortunately, Rose became a bit of an alcoholic at this point, and she couldn't cope with looking after the child, and the child ended up dying of typhoid. Crowley blamed Rose for this, and she was actually, ultimately, 
institutionalized after a few years. They did have a second daughter, with the coolest name, Lola Zaza, but Crowley decided, after Rose was institutionalized, that he didn't, he couldn't. He was like, oh dear, I am not cut out for this, so he instead left her in boarding schools and under the care of nannies. He returned to England, and there he met his first disciple, Victor Neuberg, who was a young poet from Cambridge. Neuberg was madly in love with Crowley, and Crowley just kind of saw a weak person that he could use and manipulate, but he would take it. He managed to get Victor involved in the black magic stuff that he was into, and he made him do many unspeakable things to test his loyalty, you know, as, as a freaking gaslighter and manipulator will do. One day, he took Victor to perform a ritual in the desert in Algeria, where they were to do a dark and dangerous set of rituals while tripping their tits off on all sorts of psychedelic drugs. They walked for two days until they collapsed of exhaustion. It was also kind of like sensory deprivation in the desert, you know? You look around and it all looks the same. This was part of this ritual, to be exhausted mentally and physically. They were there to summon the devil, quite literally. And part of this was to draw a circle, do a few chants and do all sorts of other things while taking more drugs. And they got really caught up in it and they ended up performing a sexual act while chanting and doing the magic. And it was at the point of orgasm that Crowley said he had a mystic revelation. He saw a blinding white light and at that point he realized sex could act as a shortcut to the gods and that it would be used in magic and rituals to get what they wanted. So after this, Victor Neuberg, Victor Neuberg was left a broken man. He never fully recovered. Whether it was the effects of the copious amounts of drugs that they did, or just the madness of it all, we do not know. But Crowley had everything that he needed to create his religion, which he called Thelema. Just to point out that everyone Crowley comes in contact with breaks mentally. I don't know if that's saying something or not, but just putting it out there. So... After this little revelation that Crowley had, he decided he wanted to go to America, where he carried on with his sex magic and he kept detailed records of the things that he did. He was a writer, remember, so there are many interesting accounts of his life. After the First World War started, he did offer himself to the British war effort as a spy, and they said no, so he then supposedly went to work on the German side where he would issue propaganda on behalf of the Germans. But it is said that he was actually a double agent and he worked for both sides. I couldn't get much information on that, but just know that he was quite possibly a spy for two teams, maybe three. When he grew tired of that, he decided to make Thelema a bigger thing. So he needed to find a place where he could have followers and practice his new religion. So he set off across Europe to find a place where it was quiet and he would not be told to leave and where he wouldn't get haters. Not that he cared that he had haters, he just didn't want to get kicked out, basically. Eventually, he did find a farmhouse in a little rural town in Sicily, Italy, which was perfect for his new abbey. This little farmhouse was hidden in the woods, you know, it was very private. So he set up the abbey in 1920 with his newest mistress named Leah Herzig, who he met in New York when she was only 19. She was fully dedicated to Crowley. And they even had a child together. But she was so ready to do anything that he told her to do, and she ended up actually writing this down. In quotes, I dedicate myself wholly to the great work. I will work for wickedness. I will kill my heart. I will be shameless before all men. 
I will freely prostitute my body to all creatures. End quotes. I don't know how he got this hold over people and over women, but he did. And, I mean, she was beautiful. This chick was gorgeous. Think Kesha, but like 1920s Kesha. Stunning. So, at the Abbey, there were a few people that followed Crowley. So, there was a couple of people. It wasn't just him and her. There was a uh, group of people. And they all lived under one roof. Men, women, children. It was said that it was a debaucherous place. Sex happening everywhere and anywhere between any people. The children would run around naked and they were exposed to adults having sex, drugs on the table, drugs being consumed all the time. There were animal sacrifices. And even Crowley even had an, a room that he called a nightmare room, where he had painted these really terrifying paintings on the walls. And he would make his disciples take LSD and then go into the room and stare at the pictures just to deal with their issues, which I don't know, I feel like that would break you. But Crowley believed that if you gave man the freedom to do whatever he wanted, this could only lead to good. So he just kept pushing boundaries. He kept making them do worse and worse things. I'm not going to mention some of the things, just know that some of the things were really bad. And as they got more and more wild, Crowley's sex magic requests were becoming more and more intense. So like, hey, let's let's have an orgy. Hey, let's, let's like have an orgy covered in blood. You know, sorts of things like that. But things started to go downhill. Crowley was becoming badly addicted to heroin and Leia actually had a nervous breakdown. Many people would get sick and they were very addicted to all the drugs and they would have to like, the only way to suck, solve their sickness was to take more drugs and uh, uh, you know, it just, it was a, it was a horror, it, it became a very unhealthy situation to be in. It's like being at a festival for way too long. You know, two, three days, that's fine. It's a good time. Everyone's having a great time. You don't want to stay after that. It gets dirty. It gets rough. You know what I'm saying? Things came to an end when a man actually died at the Abbey at the Abbey after apparently drinking the blood of a cat that was sacrificed in a ritual. This man's wife left the Abbey and she told the newspapers, which brought everything crumbling down on Crowley. He was told to leave. So he did, and he abandoned everything. He abandoned everyone. He was like, okay, bye, peace out. And everyone just sort of broke. Leah fell into prostitution. Other disciples went mad, and one actually committed suicide. Crowley was labeled as the wickedest man in the world in a newspaper. And that's how the, like, the name stuck. He had lost everything. He had no money left. Many countries wouldn't take him. And he was living in poverty. And finally, he ended up at a boarding house in Hastings, withering away, suffering with his addiction. In 1934, he was desperate for money, so he tried to sue a newspaper for calling him a black magician. In court, some of his dodgy poems were read aloud, and the wife of the man who died at the Abbey testified against him and told the court everything that happened at the Abbey. The judge was disgusted, and Crowley lost the case. After the court case, a young woman, I I say young, but I actually don't know how old she was, but she was a woman. She approached Crowley. Her name was Deirdre McClellan. She was apparently a huge fan of Crowley and his works and, you know, the way that he did things. And she pretty much told him that she wanted him to put a baby in her. (laughs) In so many words, pretty much. So this would normally send most people running, but he was desperate. So he was like, okay, cool. 
and he went home with her. She actually helped him to get clean and they had a son together that they named Alistair Atutak Crowley. It was said that this little boy was the pride and joy in Alistair's life. He did mention how he felt guilty for the way that he had lived his younger life and he realized that in his old age that family is what matters most. He died at the age of 72 in 1947. He died of chronic bronchitis. Deirdre said that when he passed away, there was a strange burst of thunder, as though Crowley was being received by the, by the gods. However, that cannot be verified. In his diary, he wrote, Rotten as I am in a thousand ways, I have been chosen by the gods to bring to earth the basic word in which mankind will work for the next two thousand years or so. I assure you, the world is ready for this move. <laughs> That's apparently how he spoke. <laughs> About a decade after he died in the 60s, the free love movement was a big thing. People were experimenting with sex and drugs and all sorts of things that Crowley had advocated for 40 years earlier. John Lennon from The Beatles said that Crowley was one of his heroes and made sure that his face was on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album. The Rolling Stones were also influenced by him through a film director, as well as Led Zeppelin. They had something of his written on one of their vinyls. There are now thousands of websites in the realm of the occult, and many of these websites are dedicated solely to the great beast, Alistair Crowley. I honestly think that it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that Alistair Crowley may have had some impact on the way that we live our lives today. I mean, the butterfly effect, you know? Although, if not him, somebody else would have done similar things, and I think we may have ended up here in any case. Like I said, I don't think that he was inherently evil. I think he just didn't give a flying fork about anything. The A in his signature is very clearly, very clearly a giant dick. Go look at it. It's a physical penis. That is his A. He was a small child in a man's body, and he was just naughty. And I reckon he just, he was, I think, very obsessed with sex, and I think he was, he didn't care. He was just a guy who wanted to show the world his middle finger. He didn't, I don't think he went out there to specifically be known as the great beast or this evil thing. I think that that was sort of, he took that on to stick it to rules and, you know, because he was brought up in such a strict Christian home, I think that he was sticking it to that. I think if he was brought up in a normal home where things weren't so strict and even anything different, maybe he wouldn't have been as extreme because he was brought up brought up in an extreme situation. And extremism leads to extremism. So he also did help to design a set of tarot cards, which I believe is still used to this day, these specific designs. His written works are also all still out there for the world to read. I tried, but I just could not get past the way he wrote. It was bleh. It drove me nuts. He has a poem about how Cecilia's farts turned him on. I mean... <laughs> Like I said, a small child in a man's body. And, you know, you kind of wonder. You, you wonder if he had not made such an impact on the pop icons of the 60s, would they have had such a big revolution in the free love movement? You know what I'm saying? I, think, I, don't, I don't think I'm, I'm wording it properly, but if they had different idols in the 60s, would we be in the place where we are today? I'm not saying where we are today is bad. Like, I am very happy that we are here where we are today. I love the openness and I still think we're still pretty closed-minded with a lot of things. So, it just makes you think, you know? 
if not Alistair, who else? You know, would there have been somebody else at the same time that would have done something similar? These are the things that keep me up at night. But that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about the strange, interesting person from way back in the day, known as the Great Beast, the wickedest man in the world, Alistair Crowley. As always, thank you for listening to Cup of Taboo. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review me on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to come back next week for a discussion of weird and interesting fetishes part two. Like me on Instagram at cup of taboo underscore podcast. Follow me on Facebook, cup of taboo. I have a Twitter. I think it's also cup of taboo, just cup of taboo. I don't know how to work Twitter though. I am an old lady. I am an elder millennial and I'm trying my best. But you can totally go tweet me, uh, email me any ideas or case suggestions, or, you know, if you really didn't enjoy anything, email it to me. Be like, hey, that sucked at cupofdaboo at gmail.com. And yeah, that's all. Have a great week. Stay hydrated. <laughs>